Well, what a great vision to have in 2021, a vision of Christ as our high King of heaven, the one who has won our victory. And we're going to talk about that, but we're going to get our our way to to that truth in in kind of a different path today. Today, as we begin this series on the law of God, I want to read for you from Romans chapter 7. Listen now to these words, Romans 7 verses 5 and 6. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're going to stop and have a seat. And as you have a seat, uh, let me just say I'm, I'm... I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about 2021. And, uh, and I want to start by sharing with you a little bit about something that I guess in the past I used to get really excited about. And that was uh, going to these things called concerts. Do you guys remember those before 2020? You'd go to a venue and it would get crowded with people and, you know, there'd be some awesome band and they'd play some great music and it'd be a lot of fun, right? When I was younger, I would go to all sorts of different concerts, right? You know, Christian concerts, secular concerts. I'd even go to like these these really, confession time, really terrible, I mean, just, I I almost feel ashamed to admit this, this this genre of music, I know that it's so sinful and it's so anti-God, but these concerts, they were called country concerts. (laughs) No, just joking, but my wife, she actually, she really is a fan of country music, and and years ago, one band in particular, we went together, and I, I don't even know if we were married at this point, it was, I think it was like two decades ago, but we went and saw the band Rascal Flats. Anybody a fan of Rascal Flats? Now, back in that day, their opening band, get this, was this unknown girl named Taylor Swift. I mean, that's how long it was. She wasn't even anyone yet, and she opened for Rascal Flatts. And we went there, and Rascal Flatts has a few really popular songs. One of them from the movie Cars, Life is a Highway. You guys could probably sing it. But the other one is kind of like for the, the romantic in you. It's this song about the, the broken road. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? It's got these lyrics. It goes something like this, right? It says, uh, it's kind of singing about how all of life's challenges and ups and downs led, uh, led them to a spot where they, they fell in love. And here's these words. It says, every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, they were like northern stars pointing me on my way into your loving arms. Aww. <laughs> this much I know is true. That God blessed the broken road that led me straight to you. You probably heard of it, even if you're not a fan of country. You probably heard those lyrics at one point or another. And you know, that song, it grips us, it pulls us in because that song is, it kind of just describes how life works, doesn't it? Every one of us, we look behind us and we see the ups and downs, we see the successes and the failures, and we recognize that all of those things brought together sooner or later lead us to these different, these different places in life where things were like a lock and a key fitting together perfectly. Whether it was a relationship, whether it's a job that just, you tried all these others and all of them led you to the, the perfect career. Maybe it was to a group of friends or, or some sort of a hobby. I don't know what it is for you, but, but life kind of works that way. The, certain experiences lead us along a path till we finally find what we're looking for, right? That's what we're going to look at today. 
That's what we're going to see today with God's law. Here's my big idea today. We're we're going to cover a lot of ground today. But with God's law, here's what I want you to see. That God's law leads you to the gospel. And God's law has different purposes. And over this week and next week, we're going to talk about some of those. We're going to talk about how actually there are different kinds of law in the Old Testament Scripture and how we know how to apply them to us today. But but the big idea, what I want you to leave here understanding very clearly is that God's law, it points you ultimately to the gospel and to Jesus. Have you ever read Old Testament Scripture and kind of read some sort of law or some sort of commandment and kind of scratched your head and say, how is this supposed to apply to me? You ever read something and and been curious about it and said like, you know, what does this mean for me? Does this apply to me or does it not apply to me? Or maybe you've encountered someone who really feels like all of the Old Testament Scripture is, is to be obeyed perfectly, right? So maybe you've experienced someone that has found out that you don't follow the Jewish dietary restrictions, What'd you have for breakfast today? You had bacon? Oh, you, you are a sinner. Maybe you've experienced that. Or maybe, maybe you've had someone in your life use your failure to obey the Old Testament law to justify their sinful lifestyle. Who, who are you to judge me in my homosexuality? I mean, you, you have a garment of two kinds of fabric. Both of them are laws in the Old Testament. Who are you to judge the difference between them? Who, who are you to make a call between what can be obeyed? and You don't follow it perfectly. You ever, you ever heard that and just kind of been like, well, I don't, even know how to, I don't even know how to answer that. You see, when we talk about God's law, we're actually opening up a can of worms. It is kind of difficult. It, it's, a, it's a hard topic, but, but all the more reason for us who stand on the other side of Jesus and his death and resurrection, all the more reason for us to know how to handle the law of God. All the more reason for us to understand how God uses it in our lives today and how we, how we apply it and, and what we apply. So that's going to be the journey we're going to go on. Today we're going to look at different kinds of laws. You know there's different kinds of laws in the Old Testament Over this week and next week, we're going to look at different uses of God's law in the Scripture. And then, after we've done some some groundwork, we're going to do some shovel work today and next week. After we've done some of that work, then we're going to open up the Ten Commandments, and we're going to walk through them one at a time, seeing what God reveals about Himself. But today, today we're going to start with how the law of God, it points you toward the gospel. Start with me on this journey. As we start this journey, what we're going to see, we're going to begin with with a a very clear statement that God's law is good. God's law is good. Here's why. Because it reveals God's character. God's law is, it's a wonderful thing because it it shows us who God is. Is. Let me show you what I mean. Exodus chapter 20. This is, the, this is the classic passage where God gives the Ten Commandments. Sometimes called the Decalogue, sometimes called the Ten Words, but, but these are the Ten Commandments of God. And in, here's how it starts. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Before God gives the Ten Commandments, God, God reminds Israel. He says, I am. I am the Lord. I, I, am, I am the Lord your God. I am the pre-existent one, the one who has no need. I am self-existent. I need nothing from anyone. And in my grace and in my love for you, I rescued you out of Egypt. I, I rescued you out of slavery. Before he even gives the commandments, he gives a self-identification, a declaration of, of his very identity. In a sense, what he's going to do here, he says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who rescues and saves you. He's basically saying, I brought you out of that house, that house of slavery. And now, you're in the wilderness, but, but now you belong to my household. Now, now you are in relationship with me. Now you are my people. And so in a sense, he's showing them how life works in his home. It's like if you come over for lunch. You come over to my house for lunch after, after church, and we'll have a good time. And, and you know, you might see me, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll kind of lean back in my chair and take the two front legs off. And, you know, some of you guys, that's a no-no in your homes. Like, don't do that. But, you know, it's something I do. It's just kind of comfortable. And if you did the same thing, I wouldn't be too stressed about it. But, but if you put your feet up on the table, <laughs> I'd say, hey, you know, we, we don't really do that here. That, we eat off that. Let's, let's not do that. I can fix the chair if it gets a little loose from leaning on it, but let's not put our feet on the table when we're eating, right? I would say, this is, this is my home. This is how life works. This is our family's character. It's kind of like if you went to someone's house and you, you found out that family was a reader. And so, you know, after dinner, everyone goes and they find their spot in the living room or in the house and everyone opens up a book. Or, or other homes, you find out that the house is it's characterized by its love for sports. And so the game's on. The Seahawks are playing today, right? And so you go there, and the game's on, and everyone's wearing the jersey, and everyone's got the game on, and everyone's cheering or jeering because it characterizes that family. It's a, it's a sports family, or maybe you're a gamer family, and you go over to someone's house, and, and sometime during the day they're all on their screens playing their different games. It characterizes the family. Here's what God does with his people that he just rescues out of Egypt. He says, you're now part of my people. This is, he, he's about to say, this is how life works as my household. This is my character. This is, this is the law of God. And so, so he begins to give them the law, and he actually, in the course of the Old Testament, he gives the people of God three different kinds of law, but, but he begins with what's called the moral law. God, God gave the moral law to reveal his goodness. God gave the Ten Commandments, the moral law, to reveal his character and ultimately to reveal that his character is a character that is good. He's good. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 19, Jesus has this incredible interaction with someone. Chapter 19, verse 16 and 17. It says, Behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Listen very carefully to some of these words. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds to him. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Who's the one who is good? But God the Father, God Almighty, the one who rescued the people out of Israel or out of Egypt. He says, there is only one who is good. And then he says this, if you would enter life, 
keep the commandments. Why keep the commandments? Because by keeping the commandments in this day, by keeping the covenant law, he would be doing the only good deed that promises eternal life. See, see, the commandments are good because they reveal God who is good. This is, this is what the moral law does. God gives us the moral law in Exodus 20. Picking up in, in verse 3, he gives us these ten words, these ten laws. He says, you should have no other God before me. I'm to be your chief and highest and greatest affection and loyalty. He says, number two, you shall make no carved images. Don't mistake the creator with the creation. Number three, he says, you should do not use the Lord's name in vain. And number four is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Number five, he says, honor your father and your your mother. He says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness or lie. And finally, he aims at the very heart, and he says, and you shall not covet. What do these laws do? They show us who God is. When God says, do not bear false testimony or do not lie, what is God actually saying? He's saying, I am true, and because you're part of my household, you should be true. When God says, do not murder, he says, I value human life because every human life is created in my image, and so you should value human life. Don't steal. Well, God values respecting one another. Do not commit adultery. God God values the gift of sex that he's given between a husband and a wife. You see, the moral law, God gives it to us, and it shows us. It shows us that he's good. But here's what we see about, what else we see about the moral law. The moral law was written in stone by God. These Ten Commandments, they're actually, they're given in a different way than all the other laws that the Scripture speaks of. Exodus 31, 18, it says, And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, check this out, written with the finger of God. See, these, this moral law is written in stone, This moral law is given in a different way than every other law. See, this moral law is different because it it reflects God's character. This is the chief expression of God's law, expressing expressing God's character. This is God showing who he is. But you know what? That moral law written in stone, it's not only written in stone. That moral law is actually witnessed in nature by all. Paul picks up on this. When you look, when you look at the world and the way it works, when you look at people and cultures, by and large, you see people living according to the same moral law. Romans chapter 2, verses 16, 14 through 16. It says, For when the Gentiles time out, who are the Gentiles? Gentiles are the people who do not have the law of God. They are the non-Jewish people who have not been given this, this law of God. It says, so for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is, look at this, written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Philosophically, this is called lex naturalis. It's the idea that God has put an imprint of his moral law. He's imprinted it on the hearts of all. I mean, do you want someone to steal from you? I remember years ago as a teenager, the first night I forgot to lock my, my truck. And I walked out and I found my window smashed and my stereo gone. I did not need God's law in that moment to tell me that someone had done wrong. It flared up inside of me. You don't want someone to steal from you. You don't, someone, you don't want someone to murder you or someone that you're near to. You don't want someone to, to uh, violate a marriage bond. Why? Because it's written on your heart. But here's the deal. Because it's internal and written on our hearts, it can become obscured. It can become darkened. It actually says that those Gentiles, it says even though their conscience bears witness to it, and it says where their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, there's a battle going on. 1 Timothy 4 actually says that, that your conscience by sin can be seared. What does it mean to be seared? It means to be like, like put on something hot and, and injured and scarred. Your conscience can be scarred. Many in our world today, they have a conscience that is scarred. They know the moral law, and yet they look at the moral law, and they, their conscience is conflicted, and they say, no, I want to do what I want to do. This is why God doesn't just give us the lex naturalis. God gives us what we, we've already looked at called the lex mosaica. The, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, written on stone, written on heart, revealing God's goodness. You see, because the moral law reveals God's goodness, listen, the moral law is unchanging. Why? Because God's character is unchanging. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man. What does it mean? God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, has he said and will not he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The idea here is God will always be faithful to his very character. And the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, what does it reveal? But his very nature. Now, this is the Ten Commandments. But, but this is not the only law revealed in God's word. There are other laws. In fact, the term used, there are what's called positive laws in the Scripture. Now, when we say positive, we're not talking about like a smiley face, like I've just got a, a happy disposition, right? Positive here means like in addition. These are additional laws in the Word of God, and these positive laws, they reflect the moral law of God, but they're not on equal basis with it. The, the positive laws or these additional laws, they are given at specific times in specific places to specific people to, to help them in their context follow the moral law. The, the first kind of, of positive law, it's called the ceremonial law. These are all of the religious laws that you read in the Old Testament. Sometimes when you get to Leviticus and you're like, I might give up on my Bible reading this year because Leviticus, I, I don't understand some of this. And you're reading these, these ceremonial moral laws, or ceremonial uh, laws. Let me show you what I mean. 
God gave the ceremonial law, why? To guide Israel in worship. These are laws about Jewish religious practice and approaching God. But listen, these ceremonial laws, what to eat, what to wear, how to cleanse yourself, these ceremonial laws, listen very carefully, they have been fulfilled in Christ. This is the New Testament teaching about the ceremonial law. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Check this out. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Whoa, whoa, don't, okay, don't judge me. No, no, based on what? No, no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all references to Jewish ceremonial law. The, the, the law, the positive additional law that God gave to the Jewish people in the desert and then in the land that he gave to them in his covenant relationship with them. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you about your obedience to ceremonial law. Why? Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, these ceremonial laws, they only make sense with a failure to follow the Mosaic law. The ceremonial laws only make sense in light of, of failing to follow the moral law of God. And so these ceremonial laws are given, sacrifice this, clean this way, do these things. All of these things, these are building towards something, but they're actually all, what does it say, is a shadow. I, I look down and I can see my shadow coming across the stage right here. That's not me though. If the only thing about me you know is my shadow, guess what? You know very little about me. Right now, you'll think that I'm an eight-foot-tall person. That's how long my shadow looks right now. You won't know me well. But the substance is Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 1, picks up on the very same thing. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good thing to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not, or otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is the shadow. It was repeated every year. Because the shadow, the, the ceremonial law, you know what it is? It's a placeholder. It's waiting for the one who is the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose blood actually can take away sin. This is what the ceremonial law is. It's a placeholder. It's a signpost. It's a flashing light that says, there's something better coming. There's something better coming. And that something better came, and his name was Jesus. And instead of having the blood of bulls and goats, you have the blood of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who paid the price for all of your sins, and you have been cleansed. This... This is the second kind of law. We have the moral law, reveals God and his character is good. Then you have the ceremonial law, which has been fulfilled and is no longer binding. And then the third kind of law given to the people of Israel, it was to guide Israel. This is the judicial law to guide Israel as a nation. 
These are, these are sometimes called the civil law. This is almost like the governmental law given to manage the people of Israel as a covenantal nation. They were obligated to obey it because they were under the covenant of the law. But in the same way, you are no longer obligated to obey this. In, in fact, Paul, he applies Old Testament judicial law, but he applies the principle to New Testament believers, not, not the actual strict commands. Let me show you what I mean. This is kind of a little bit off the beaten path, but, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is he's having this, this conversation. He's writing about these the kind of the false teachers and these, these apostles that are kind of throwing their weight around, and they're dismissing Paul and Paul's ministry, and, and they're kind of degrading Paul. And so Paul is answering them, especially in light of the, the kind of the partnership between uh, ministry and, and him receiving goods or, or being fed and cared for. Listen to what he says, though. He uses an Old Testament law, but he applies it to people in a New Testament fashion. Verse 8, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. It, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Here's what he's doing. Paul is applying the principle of an Old Testament command to, to a New Testament reality. I mean... How many of us today are going to go home and muzzle the ox while it's tread, thre, treading the, the grain? Is, is that on your to-do list after church today? Maybe. I don't know what you got going on. But, but listen, he, he, he is recognizing this command, the general equity. This is the term I want you to hear. The general equity of the law, the, the principles of the law are applied judiciously today. Not, not, not the exact text, that would be an uh, archaic application, but instead the principles behind them. Usually this applies most often in things like the punishment should fit the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. Instead of, instead of having a punishment that makes me feel good and it crushes my enemy, no, the punishment should fit the crime. This has to do with things like just restitution if damage is done in, in a, a moment of neglect, right? You probably don't have a bull that's going to go accidentally gouge someone or gore someone, but you might back into someone in the parking lot and have to ha figure out just restitution. This is... This is the principle. The, the, the judicial law of God is no longer binding, but we do in wisdom take the principles and apply it to society today. We'll actually talk more about this next week. So you have these three laws. You have the moral law of God, unchanged and reveal God's goodness. The ceremonial law of God fulfilled in Christ and the judicial law of God giving to the nation to govern the nation of Israel. We're no longer obligated to it, but we learn from it and we can apply it. You see, God's law is good. Every, everything about God's law is good and given for your benefit, given so you can know his character and know that he is good. But, but that's not the only thing we see in God's law today. God's law is good. It reveals his character. But also, God's law is condemning. Here's why. Because it reveals your character. 
God's law is good. It reveals his character. But God's law, it is condemning. Because it shows that you, you're not good. Let me, let me have you turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to work our way back uh, through some of it, and then we're going to back up a little bit to verse 4. But, but let me show you how Paul applies this very idea of, of the goodness of God's law in the life of a believer. It reveals that God is good, but it reveals something terrible about us. You see, verse 7, we, we, we begin with the reality that my sin, my sin is revealed by the law. Paul writes here, he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I, I would not have known my sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the law of God, what it does is it gives, gives definition to the things that I do by nature in contrast to God's, God's will. The law of God, it reveals, it's like when you're a teenage kid, this never happens in my house, he sleeps in too late, and you got to go and you got to pull the covers back, and he, he is exposed, and he's like, ah, right? this, this is exactly what God's law does for us when we read it. It says, thou shalt not covet, and we say, man, I do that every day. Thou shalt not murder, and we add Jesus' words to it and say, man, I carry around hate in my heart. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I'm lustful at times. Thou shalt not steal, but I've done that too. What God's law does is it pulls the covers back, and it shows that you are exposed in your sin. God's law is condemning because it reveals that I'm not good. Not only is my sin revealed by the law, my, my sin is roused by the law. Verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Covetousness. That's a hard word sometimes. It says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here's what it says. It says, Sin working in me. When it, when it sees the law of God, it, it says it seizes the opportunity and, and it pushes me, it, it, my sin is roused towards sin. It's not just do not covet as if there's only one variety of it. Now I read those words and, and my sin pushes me to say, ooh, I want that and I covet that and I wish I had, and, and I start to, I start to have all kinds of coveting flowing out of my heart. A great illustration is the, the movie Finding Nemo. Everybody seen it years ago? Kind of an old movie. It's a great kids movie, by the way. I love it. There's a scene where the main character, Nemo, he's kind of, he's in defiance with his dad, and he, he swims out into the open water, and as he does, there's a, there's a boat up above on the top of the water. Nemo's a fish, by the way. I should, I should probably start with that, but he swims out by the boat, and he's over by the boat, and his dad, Marlin, is, they don't call it a boat, by the way. They call it a butt. It's a funny, funny game, right? But his dad, Marlin, he says, says Nemo, Nemo, don't you dare touch that boat. And Nemo kind of puts his fin out. Don't you touch that boat! And, and Nemo, in just straight defiance, plop, does the exact same thing he's not supposed to. Nemo's friend goes, oh, he touched the butt. But isn't this what every kid does? Isn't this what every one of us do? When we, when we have 
this, this law placed in front of us. When, when you're driving down I-5 and the speed limit changes from 70 to 60, do you, you hit the brakes or do you look around to make sure there's not a, there's not a highway patrol somewhere near? When, when do not touch is put in front of you, how often if you put your finger right on it? See, sin takes this opportunity. It's aroused by the law. So my sin is revealed by the law. It's aroused by the law. And then ultimately, my sin is judged by the law. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. Now, he's not saying here that I was guiltless. He's actually saying here that I was ignorant of the weight of my sin and my guilt until the law came. And then I'm judged by it. And, and when I'm judged by it, I see that the term he uses is that, that it killed me. I'm dead in the water. I, I, am, I, am, I am right there, naked, ashamed in my sin. Now, the tension here then is, in, in Paul's argument, is to then, okay, well, you know what? The law must be pretty bad. If the law does all these things to me, the law must be nefarious. The law must do something evil in me. But this is where he goes next. He shows that my sin is in contrast to the law, but the law is good. Verse 12, he says, so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, ultimately, I am under the consequence of my sin, but the law of God, listen very carefully, the problem is not with the law of God. The problem is not with God. You know where the problem is? The problem is with you. The problem is with me. You're not a victim of the law. You're not a, a passive, innocent person, and God's law has wrecked your life. And G.K. Chesterton, it's a, a, a classic story about him. He was a philosopher in England years ago, and, and uh, he was asked to write an essay answering the question, what is wrong with the world? And he gives one of the most brief statements of answering this question ever. He wrote a letter to those who requested the essay, and he said, Dear Sir, I am signed G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? You are. What's wrong with the world? I am. My sin. And this means that you and I, if we're left alone with the law, alone against the law, you and I, we are helpless and we are hopeless. Our sin is revealed, our sin is roused, our sin is judged, and we are dead in the water except we are not alone. Except you're not alone. Back up with me to verse 4 of Romans 7. See, see, this conversation about the law, it actually picks up after this clear statement has been made that in Christ, you have died to the law. In Christ, you are now no longer under the law. We'll, we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Verse 4, 
Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to who? To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here's what this says. This says that through the body of Christ, through his death, you also have died to the law. This means through Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death for you, you, you are no longer under the law. One chapter previous, Romans 6.14 puts it this way. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Want to know why? Since you are not under the law, but under grace. That phrase, not under the law, but under the grace. Let's just camp there for a minute. Let's just revel in some of the beauty of what it means for you to be not under the law, but under grace. This means, first of all, that the law, the covenantal expectation that if you obey the law, then you can have eternal life. You are no longer saved by obeying the law. The law is good. It promises life. If you obey the law, you will live. That that was the old covenant, but you are now no longer saved by obeying the law. It gets even better. Not only is it that you are not saved by obeying the law any longer, you are not condemned for breaking it. You understand the weight of, of this statement? No longer do you have to be good enough to be saved, and no longer are you condemned for how bad you've been. See, see, the law and the gospel, or the law and grace, that they say different things. The law says, do this and live. The the gospel of grace says live because it's all been done for you in Christ. The, the law condemns the sinner and cannot justify, but grace, it justifies a sinner and will no longer condemn you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, through the body of Christ, you, you have... You have died to the law, and now through the body of Christ, you have been raised to the Spirit. Here's what he says. He says, you now serve God in a completely brand new way. When you serve God, it's not, I have to or else. When you serve God, it's not, what's the written code say? i got to make sure I cross every T and dot every I. Oh no, I messed up again. i got to go do the sacrificial system. No, when you serve God now, it's not by the written code. It is by the Spirit. Now you are free to bear fruit for God. Now you are free to serve Him, not perfectly stumbling your way toward, toward holiness, but you are now free to serve Him because there's no longer this axe hanging over your head. The law, it shows you what a holy life should be, but the grace of God in the gospel gives you the power to now live that holy life. 
Now, we'll pick up on that in the next few weeks as we unravel the Ten Commandments. But, but here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to imagine two parallel roads. Both of them are headed straight to heaven. The first road, is it's up above the lower road. And the first road, it's high up and it's, it's perfectly smooth and even and flat. It's, it's the joy to walk on. Maybe it's not even made out of turf. It's like, it's, like that, or it's like that squishy stuff on the track that kind of is good for your joints, right? Like it's really just a joy to walk in. But down a, a steep and dangerous hill that cannot be climbed, the bottom road, it runs parallel. And this road goes the same exact place. They both go to eternal life. But this bottom road, it is full of traps and toil. It is treacherous and dangerous. It is impossible. Let me say it again. It is impossible to navigate it to the end. This bottom road is like trying to obey the law for your salvation. Try as hard as you may. It will never work. You you might overcome one obstacle, but there's going to be another that's ten times worse. It, It is impossible to make it there. And you look up at that upper road, you say, man, I sure like to get up there. But every attempt you make on your own fails and you fall. And every fall causes more pain. Here's what the law does, though. That, that bottom road, it makes us realize that there is no hope on our own. So finally, we look up and we call out and we say, is there anybody up there that can help? And we find Jesus answers. The metaphor, he throws the rope down for us, but in real life, he comes and he dies, paying the price for all of your sin. You are no longer under the law, but under grace. So I want you to see what the, the law does. We'll look at more of what the law does next week, but for today, let's stop right here. And when you, when you look at the law, will you see that the law shows that you have great sin which means you have a great need and it points you to a great savior heavenly father lord today we want to thank you for your law god we 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 see parts of it we've covered a lot of ground today but, but at the end of it all, Lord, help every one of us, whether we're watching online or sitting in this room, help every one of us realize the great need we have. Lord, free us from trying to be good enough on your, our own, trying to obey the law in such a way that produces your approval. Instead, let us see that we now, by faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection, We no longer are bound to obey the law for salvation. Instead, we are now freed. We are now under grace. Thank you for the great gift of grace. Thank you for this this incredible gift that we do not deserve, and yet you've given it to us freely in Jesus Lord, I pray that as we walk in grace, as we walk in this new way of the Spirit, I pray that we would desire naturally, supernaturally to please you by living according to your moral law. Not because of what we can earn, but because of what has been given to us. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.